So on July 15, 1986, Roger Clemens was a young right-hander and he was playing for the Boston Red Sox. And he was selected that year. He started out the year pretty good for, for a young kid. There were certainly, certainly more established, more recognized names in baseball that year. And he started off the year pretty great. And he was selected as the pitcher who would start the All-Star game for the American League. This was a big deal, especially for a young kid. But in the second inning, he did something that he didn't have to do very often as a pitcher in the American League. He had to bat. He had to bat. And as he got in the batter's box, he, he faced a man named Dwight Gooden. He pitched in the National League. The previous year, he'd won the Cy Young Award. Gooden wound up and threw a fastball up and in. Clemens couldn't hardly believe it. It was a strike right at the top of the strike zone, painted the inside corner. And he stepped out of the batter's box, and with an embarrassed smile, he turned to the catcher, Gary Carter, and he said, Gary, is that what it looks like when I pitch? And Gary said, you better believe it, Roger. So he stepped into the batter's box, and you know what happened next? He promptly struck out on two more pitches. <laughs> it's a good story, right? But you know what happened after that. When Clemens went back out to pitch, he ended up throwing three perfect innings and was named the All-Star Game MVP. He was later asked, what happened? And he said, I was reminded of how overwhelming a good fastball is, and it gave me confidence. You see, he had forgotten the power that he wielded until he was reminded. Sometimes we forget the power of God. Sometimes we forget what the power of God looks like in our lives today. I'd like to remind us of that power, and I'd like to remind us of something really simple. You ready for this? This is simple, and I hope this can change your life today. Faith doesn't require self-confidence. It requires God-confidence. Faith doesn't require self-confidence. It doesn't matter what I can accomplish. Sal's a high-impact person. He's a, a leader. He's a, he's a good, strong man. He's got a mind for business and leadership. I don't. But it doesn't matter what I can accomplish because it matters what God can accomplish through me. Faith doesn't rely on my abilities. It relies on God's abilities working through me. Faith doesn't require self-confidence. It requires God confidence. And I want to show you what I mean here. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I've got to go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses! I am, Moses replied. 
Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for, the, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, What is his name? What do I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me, I've been watching closely and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I've promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Hivites and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. And I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go, so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. And you will dress your sons and daughters with these strippings, with these stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. Remember what I said before we read that chapter? Faith doesn't require self-confidence. It requires God confidence. So Moses, he's in Midian, and he's tending sheep. But he didn't start his life there, did he? You know where he started his life? He started his life 
in Egypt. He was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew child. And, and at the time when Moses was born, being a Hebrew boy was kind of a problem. Because you see, Pharaoh had started to feel threatened by the Hebrews. And so he sent out an order. And here's what he said. Whenever a Hebrew baby boy is born, you're going to kill him. He's going to die. Well, Moses' parents were not on board with that, and so they fashioned a basket, and they put the little baby in the basket and sent him down the river, and you know who found this little baby in the basket? It was Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses was raised in the household of the king of Egypt, the king or the Pharaoh of Egypt. He was raised in the royal family of all Egypt. But he knew that he wasn't Egyptian by birth. He knew that he was a Hebrew. And so one day he began to explore and interact with his people. And he saw that they were being oppressed. And another day he went out and he saw one of his fellow countrymen being greatly mistreated by an Egyptian. And in anger, he struck the Egyptian and he killed him. And he tried to bury him in the sand. Sounds like a terrible place to bury somebody. Sand. Because sand blows away. So he buries the guy in the sand. And he knows that he's in trouble now. You cannot kill an Egyptian soldier. So he flees. And he ends up in a place called Midian. And now he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. He meets a nice girl. And he marries her, and his father-in-law is a priest. His name's Jethro. And Moses is just really, he's just pleased with life. He's out of the big city. He's living in the country. Things are slower. People are nice to you. They wave when they pass you on the road. And he, just, he just likes the slow pace of this country lifestyle in Midian. And he's a shepherd. And you know, he could have done so many different things, but I don't think it's a coincidence that Moses ended up shepherding people. Do you know that God uses shepherding to prepare people for greater roles more than once in the Bible? Do you know that? That God uses shepherding to prepare people for another job or task or, or ministry. He does that elsewhere in the Bible. Let me give you the seminal example. His name's David. So, um, David grows up to be the king of the nation of Israel. He did a lot of good things for the nation of Israel, didn't he? But you know what his first job was? He was a shepherd. In fact, when the prophet Samuel came to find the king, he knew that he was going to be in Jesse's house. Jesse's David's dad. He knew that the king was going to be in Jesse's house, so he shows up and he says, Jesse... One of your boys is going to be the king of this country. Let me, let me see your sons, and God's going to show me which one it is. And so Jesse said, oh, I've got great sons. They're going to be good. And so he brings out the oldest, the strongest, the smartest, the best-looking sons, and God says, no, 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 no. You got any other sons? Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, I've got one more, but he's out tending the sheep. God uses shepherding to prepare people for other ministries later on. 
And so here's what I need you to know from this. Just because you're not doing what you want doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Just because you're not doing what you want doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Maybe, just maybe, God is using whatever you're doing right now to prepare you for what He has for you later. For Moses, later was now. God was ready to call on him. And how does God call on Moses? He appears in some plant life. Some pyrotechnic plant life. There's a bush, and it's burning, and it's not being consumed. Can I just make a a very brief observation here, and we'll go on? The impossible does not exist with God. The impossible doesn't exist with God. God's doing the impossible with this plant to prove that He can do the impossible in our lives. What did we say last week? It's not common sense, but an uncommon sense of God's abilities. God's doing the impossible with this plant to prove that He can do the impossible in our lives. And I don't know how you need to hear that this morning. Maybe it's in relation to addiction. Maybe it's in relation to an anger problem. Anything that you feel like is impossible. I couldn't possibly do that. With man, this is impossible. But with God, how's that first end again? With man, this is impossible. But with God, what does it go? Is it some things are impossible? No, that's not how it goes. A few things are impossible. No, that's not it either. With man, this is impossible. But with God, there's only one or two things that are impossible. No, that's not it. This is not either. Oh, I remember now. I've got it. I've got it. With man, this is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Somebody act like that's good news. I want a little Pentecostal on you this morning, and it felt right. (laughs) Here's what we need to learn from that verse we can't think in terms of possible or impossible. We can't think in terms of possible or impossible. We have to think in terms of God's will or not. Is it God's will or is it not God's will? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says it this way. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else and live righteously and He will give you everything you need. If it's God's will, here's my commentary on this verse. You ready? That's how I commentary Matthew 6.33. If it's God's will, it's possible. If it's not God's will, who cares if it's possible? Can I say that one more time? Because I really like that. Okay, This is my commentary on Matthew 6.33. If it's God's will, it's possible. If it's not, who cares? Why are we wasting our time with it? Man, God said a lot before we even started talking, didn't He? Right, remember, this is just... This is just burning bush. He hasn't even said anything yet. But when he does speak, what does he say? He says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And then he says, I know my people are struggling. I know my people are struggling, that they're hurting, that this is an awful time for them. Then why hasn't God done anything yet? Why why has he just sat there knowing that his people are struggling? Why hasn't he done anything yet? Because he's been preparing Moses to do something. 
He's been acting. He's been acting and molding and shaping Moses into the man of God who would do his work of redeeming his people Israel from the nation of Egypt. God's been preparing Moses for this role. How's he been preparing him? Well, first of all, he was raised in Pharaoh's house. So he understands Egypt. He understands Egyptian culture. He understands how their diplomatic structure works. But more importantly, Moses was trained as a shepherd. God's been preparing him his whole life for this moment. And I guess I want to ask you this question. Are you preparing for something? Or are you waiting for somebody else to take charge? Even if you don't know what it is, God is preparing you for something. Charles Stanley has some advice that I think is really applicable in this question, in this moment. Here's what he says. He says, obey God and leave the consequences to Him. Obey God and leave the consequences to Him. Obeying God isn't always easy, is it? Sometimes... Sometimes it gets us crossways with people. Sometimes it'll get you crossways with your boss. Sometimes it'll get you crossways with your co-worker. Sometimes it'll get you crossways with your family. But obey God and leave the consequences to Him. So here's where Moses is at. And just like Abraham last week, Moses is at a decision point. And last week Abraham said, yeah, all right, I'll go. Sounds like a good idea. Moses is a little bit different. Moses has an excuse or two. Have you ever met anybody who's given you an excuse before? I've been trying to get Rick Hamer to help me build the playground for three months. And every Saturday morning, I call him up and say, Rick, you want to come help me build the playground? And you wouldn't believe the incredible arsenal of excuses this man has. I asked him the first time, I I said, Rick, you want to help me build the playground? He said, I'm sorry, I got homework tonight. I went, what? I said, Rick, you want to help me build a playground? He said, I got to feed my hamster. Rick, you want to help me? I got to fly to Nebraska tomorrow. Rick, you want to help me? I can't hear you. I'm going through a tunnel. You're breaking. You are right in front of me. (laughs) Moses had a couple excuses, too. And frankly, Moses had some pretty good reasons to not want to go to Egypt. He's going, God, you, you know my past, right? You know what, what happened with me in Egypt before. I got, that, I got that thing. I got that thing in Egypt. Remember that little I'm wanted for murder thing? I'd really rather not go back to Egypt, God. God, I haven't lived there in 40 years I don't have any credibility with the Hebrew people because I was raised Egyptian. And all these things are running through Moses' mind as he says, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Not a bad question. But the emphasis is in the wrong place. See, the first part of the question is exactly right. He says, who am I? Who am I? The second part's where he gets off the rails. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? You see, Moses was more afraid of Pharaoh than he was God. What he should have said is, who am I that you would call on me? God doesn't worry about it, though. He's willing to let that one go. He keeps talking with his boy Moses. And what he says in reply is essentially, it doesn't matter who you are. I'll be with you. You hear that? That's kind of important. 
it doesn't matter who you are because I'll be with you. I don't know what area of service God's calling you into. Maybe you heard Sal's presentation about Kids Hope this morning, and you're going, wow, that sounds pretty good, but I just don't think I'm qualified. I've got that, that thing in my past. I'm not very good with kids. I'm not eloquent. I can't do simple math. It doesn't matter who you are if God is with you. Do you hear that? It doesn't matter who you are if God is with you. Faith doesn't require self-confidence. It requires God confidence. Let me tell you, you can have confidence in our God. So here's the question for us. Are you more afraid of someone or something than you are of obeying God? So Moses asks the question, who am I? And God says, doesn't matter, I'll be with you. And then Moses asks a very natural next question. He says, okay, if it doesn't matter who I am because you'll be with me, who are you? Seems like a logical question, right? I can follow that train of thought. What does God say in response? Very helpful answer. I am. Let me explain why that's important. In the ancient world, they did battle a little bit different. Warring armies would prepare for battle, and then they would take an idol of their god with them. So let's say on uh, this side, we've got the Egyptians, and they've, uh, and they've got a, a, a battle that they're going to get ready to have with uh, the Philistines, okay? And so um, the Philistines are over here with their god, uh, Dagon, and the Egyptians are over here with their god, Ra, and two actual armies, we'll say 10,000 people on each side. They're equally matched armies. There's no historical accuracy to this. It's just an example, okay? 10,000 people on each side are getting ready to do battle, and they would bring their idols, Ra and Dagon, and what they thought was happening in the spiritual realm is that Ra and Dagon were battling it out, and the winner of that battle would determine the winner of the battle between the two actual armies. So the question that's being asked here is, who are you? God, what, what kind of a God are you? Are you going to be enough for us to ensure victory? In verse 13, the question Moses is asking, what God are you bringing to battle? God's answer is, I'm more than enough to defeat anything that comes against me. He says, I am. Let me tell you what's implied as he says, I am. He says, I will be before the battle. I will be during the battle. And I will be after the battle. I am. Faith doesn't require self-confidence. It requires God-confidence. Are you convinced yet? Because Moses isn't. Some of you have more faith than Moses this morning. That's good. Moses isn't. So he goes on. He says, well, what if they won't believe me? I'm not very good with words. What if they don't believe me? I'm not very good with words. Can't we send somebody else? And God says, enough. Enough. Stop it. You're the one that I'm going to do this work through. And Moses ended up going back to Egypt. Maybe some of you need to hear this. This is just a passing comment, but some of you need to hear this. His past didn't matter because God gave him a future. I don't know who needed to hear that, but some of you did. And when he gets there, what happens? Pharaoh says no nine times. It's funny how we define success in the Bible, isn't it? 
Nine times it didn't work. And all of a sudden it did. I think there's a lesson in there. So nine times Pharaoh says no, then he lets him go. Moses and the people leave. Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, on second thought, you know what? No, they can't leave. And he chases after them. And they get pinned down in front of the Red Sea. And God says, don't worry about it. I got it. And he parts the Red Sea. And the Hebrews cross on dry land. And the Egyptians are swallowed up. The Egyptian captors, the ones who have been enslaving the Hebrews, are swallowed up and drowned in the Red Sea. God did that for his people Israel when he freed them from Egypt through Moses. God has done something very similar for us. Except we don't need to be freed from slavery in Egypt. We need to be freed from slavery to sin. And God hasn't rescued us through Moses. He's rescued us through Jesus. And you know, the parallels between the Egyptian captivity and our slavery, they're fascinating. The Egyptian captivity started off innocently enough. It started off innocently enough. It started with Joseph, right? He was, he was uh, cast off by his brothers, and through a wild series of events, he ends up in Egypt, first as a slave in Potiphar's house, and then into prison, and then as the advisor and closest confidant to the king, the second in command in all of the nation of Egypt. And the Hebrew people have it pretty good in Egypt for a while. But over the course of time, things change. And one day, the people wake up and realize that they're enslaved. And they have no idea how they got there. Sin kind of works that way too. Nobody wakes up one day and decides that they want to cheat on their spouse. Maybe it starts with pornography. And those fantasies become your understanding of normal. And as your expectations aren't met, you begin to pull away. And as you begin to pull away, you begin to lean more into pornography. And then all of a sudden, there's a coworker that pays attention to you, and you like that. And you spend time talking to that coworker. And then you exchange messages after work. And then you meet up, and one day you wake up and realize that you're trapped. Nobody wakes up one day and decides to cheat on their spouse. It happens gradually over time. We could work that same conversation, that same progression, that same slow fade through any sinful activity or behavior you could find. Nobody wakes up one day and decides they'd like to be enslaved to sin. It happens gradually. It gets worse and worse until one day you look around and think, how in the world... Did I get here? Is there any way out? There is a way out. And his name's Jesus. And if you think the way that Moses led the people out of Egypt was miraculous, just wait until I tell you about what Jesus did. See, Moses was part of the royal family in Egypt, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Jesus is the ruler and sustainer of the entire universe. Moses left Egypt to tend sheep. Jesus left heaven to seek and save sheep. Moses returned to Egypt reluctantly, and Jesus came to earth humbly and willingly. Moses' miracles started with life and ended with death, and Jesus' miracles started with death and ended with life. Moses sacrificed a lamb. Jesus sacrificed himself.
So that when God looks at what I've done wrong, He doesn't see a need to punish. He sees Jesus that has been punished for me. Moses led the Egyptian oppressors through the sea and washed them away. Jesus tells us to lead our sins into the waters of baptism and have them washed away. And you know, that's important. Baptism is really important. But it's not the last step. It's not the last step at all. You see, after the Hebrews escaped the Egyptians, it wasn't do whatever you want time. It was follow God even more closely time. And see, we, we do this disservice when we talk about baptism as a culmination of our spiritual lives. It's not. It's the beginning. Right? What does Paul say? He says when we're baptized, we have new life. It's a new story. It's page one of your new life. And our new life has a priority, and that priority is follow God. Hebrews followed God. You know that? After they got out of Egypt, they followed God with a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And that's what they did. That was their job. They followed God. And when we become Christians, when we become followers of Christ, our job is to follow. Where? Wherever He leads. Maybe you have to follow as a 40-year-old who needs to make a career change and prepare for ministry. Maybe you have to follow God and commit to one hour a week of Kids Hope mentoring. Maybe you need to follow God and begin tithing. 10%, 5%, 1%, I don't care, just start. Maybe you need to follow God by walking away from something sinful in your life. My advice is, no matter where you need to follow God to, how you need to follow Him, what you need to do, my advice is start, not by your power, but by God's power in your life. And maybe you're here today, and you need to take the first step of obedience. I think you should do it. Can I just be real with you? I think you should do it. I know you can find a hundred reasons why you shouldn't, but I've got one why you should. Don't do it with self-confidence. Do it with God-confidence. If you need to act, I think you should do it today. Let me pray for us, and then if you have a decision to make, come forward and we'll talk about it as we sing. God, we come from different places and different backgrounds, and the only thing we all really have in common is that we are sinners who need a Savior. And we stand before you now and we praise you that you are that Savior. God, we thank you for living for us and dying for us and resurrecting for us so that we can have hope that lasts beyond this life and that we can have confidence for this life because we don't do it on our own. We do it by your power. And God, if anybody in this room needs to experience the hope of a resurrection life, we pray that they will do it today. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.